the politics of sound with Ian Carnegie. My guest this month is Mary Honeyball, Labour's former London MEP in Brussels since 2000. Her decision not to stand for re-election in this year's Euro elections was overshadowed by the sudden announcement that she was leaving the Labour Party after 40 years of membership and service. I met Mary at her home in London to discuss these issues and, of course, what inspires her, both politically and musically, on this, The Politics of Sound. After the momentous events of the past weeks, is life starting to treat you a little more gently? I think it probably is. Um, As you and listeners will know, I decided I'd stand down from the European Parliament. My mandate officially finishes on the 2nd of July, but the last three or four weeks in the European Parliament have been looking to the future, have been deciding on committee positions and who's going to get what in terms of what goes on in the European Parliament. So I've not needed to be there. Uh, So I've been at home, which has been very nice. I'm still doing some work. I've still got some parliamentary work to do. Um, And my office is still in Brussels, so I'm keeping up with things. But it's the pace is a lot slower now. And I'm also writing a book. Um, I'm writing a biography of Baroness Edith Summerskill, who was a minister in the 1945 Labour government. So that's been keeping me busy, and I've got into a routine now where I, I get up and have breakfast and whatever, then I write in the morning, and that's been really nice. Are you missing the long commute to Brussels? Not at all. I mean, that was one of the things that was really beginning to get to me. I've been doing that for nearly 20 years, And it's easy from London compared with a lot of my colleagues from other countries. It's fine. It's two hours to Brussels. Strasbourg's a bit more difficult and we still go to Strasbourg once a month. But uh, I used to do Strasbourg on the train, as most of us from London and the South East did. And even that wasn't too bad. But it is relentless. I mean, you are getting up every Monday morning, getting on a a train for a long journey. You're away from home during the week. So I found it, 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 I just found it more and more difficult to cope with. And, And I felt now I've done my bit really. I think 20 years in politics, frontline elected politics actually is long enough. You've described yourself as a passionate European. Mm. Where did that passion stem from? I've, been a passionate European since I was a student, uh, which was quite a long time ago now. Um, I actually campaigned in the 1975 referendum. Um, I think it came from a, a variety of sources. A lot of it was about Europe and about peace and how the, the, the common market, as it was then, now the European Union, really has been a force for peace in Europe. And we have avoided tearing ourselves apart as, as a continent, which was... What I grew up with, I was born not so long after the end of the Second World War, and that was very much still in everyone's mind. Everybody talked about the war. Um, My father had actually been in the army on active service, and both my grandfathers had been in the First World War. So it was a big, it was a really big deal, and, and I don't think people who are younger than me quite understand how important it was for my generation. And I just took the view that anything we can do to stop that happening has to be a good thing. And that's really, I think, what started it. You were in Brussels, in post, 
uh, when the Brexit result came in. What are your recollections of that time? Oh, that evening was quite extraordinary. I was actually doing media on College Green. Um, There were endless media tents around and all the broadcasters from this country and from the EU were there. And I did stuff mainly with France 24 uh, in in English um, and I think one or two other continental stations as well. Um, and it was it was it was amazing. I mean, it it often gets like that at College Green on election night. That night was absolutely incredible. You could hardly move. And of course, when the first results started to come in, we thought we'd won. And if you remember, Nigel Farage conceded. I do. Yes, exactly. So we thought, oh, good, it's been close, but we've done it. And then further results came in, and I came back. I mean, as you said, I live quite near the Houses of Parliament, um, and it was just awful. Stayed up that night just getting more and more depressed about it. Um, And I think the real shock that night was the number of what we thought were Labour areas who would be damaged by Brexit, who still voted in favour of leaving. There are others, but I sense that Brexit was the principal factor in your decision to step down as an MEP. It was. um, It was... It was a difficult decision in many ways, although I do feel 20 years was enough, uh, because we weren't sure what was going to happen. Um, we, we have we missed two de- deadlines in Brexit, so nobody really expected these European elections, and some of my colleagues had made quite definite plans to do something else. I hadn't done that. But then when it came to it, I thought, well... I didn't really want to go on under those circumstances. There is an argument, of course, for staying and fighting. And I know colleagues of mine are doing that now. And they're working within the Labour Party to get a rather better policy on Brexit than the current one. But I, I felt... I'd actually felt I'd been through a lot within the Labour Party one way and another, and I didn't feel I was the right person to go on doing that. Though, you know, my colleagues who are who are out there campaigning are doing a fantastic job. I just didn't feel it was right for me at this time. You've described the leadership of the Labour Party as being anti-European, and the party is facing both ways over Brexit. What do you mean by that? Well, it's what they seem to want to call constructive ambiguity, that they don't really want to come down on one side or the other. They don't want to be remain or they don't want to be completely leave because they think that by taking one or other of those courses, they will alienate the other side in terms of their voters, which never works in politics. I think you really do have to make decisions in politics and show leadership and trying to please all of the people all of the time just means that you'll seem to be sitting on the fence and you get hurt and you don't win. So what do you feel that the Labour Party stands for, in your opinion, at the moment? Um, A lot of things which I don't think can be delivered very easily. And we've heard plans for nationalising, nationalisation of the railways and of water and utilities... Um, which seems to be one of the principal policies, which is fine. I mean, I don't object to nationalisation in itself, but there has to be the right time and the right place to do it. And I think there are, in this country at the moment, greater priorities. I don't think the party's really thought through and done enough on how we're going to tackle poverty, which is 
the real issue, I think, facing this country. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, why so many people voted for Brexit, and what I think a lot of people think, uh, was because wages haven't risen in real terms for really since the crash in 2008. People are feeling left behind. Um, unemployment, I don't think, is quite is, is as bad. If you look at unemployment statistics, actually... There's very lit, very low unemployment in the UK. But I think there is a feeling that people aren't as well off as they were. And that's not right. We shouldn't be in that place now. Um, other European countries seem to be getting out of the 2008 crisis in a rather better way than this country is. So we need to tackle that and we need to tackle the divisions I'm very fortunate to live in London and to have represented London because a lot of what I'm talking about really doesn't affect the capital in the same way as it affects everywhere else. I mean, there are parts of the country who have definitely seen their living standards go down and feel left behind and feel that everything happens here, not where they are. And we have to address that. What would have to happen? What circumstances would have to be in place for you to return to the party that you love? To be absolutely honest, I think we would need a change of leadership. Um, I I don't. I can't see Brexit. That the party's ambiguous policy on Brexit changing under Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, we've seen the shadow cabinet this week fail to make any progress. Although it would appear the majority of shadow cabinet members want to change the policy to being pro-Remain and to actually go out and campaign for remaining in the in the in the EU, but. Jeremy Corbyn says he's got to go and consult the unions and the GMB and Unison seem to be absolutely fine. But it's Len McCluskey of Unite who wants to leave the EU. And I think together, Jeremy Corbyn, Len McCluskey and Corbyn's office, particularly Seamus Milne, are just ardent Brexiteers. And they're pulling back on all the decisions the party makes. We know that the overwhelming majority of Labour Party members... I mean, almost 90% want to stay in the EU. We know that MPs and the Shadow Cabinet do, but the leader's office, who are incredibly powerful, are saying no and want to stick with the current policy. I don't find that acceptable. And I also do remember, as I've been around for a long time, in the 1980s, when Jeremy Corbyn was one of the leading lights in the campaign for Labour Party democracy, uh, which we all believed in and supported. And now it's the, on the other foot, and he's the one who has to be accountable. He's just not doing it. Have you considered aligning yourself with another party, publicly or privately? Not really. Um, I've been a member of the Labour Party since since I was a student. Um, it's a very long time, uh, and my heart's still there. I think, to be honest, and I don't. I don't really want to join another party. Um, I'm at the moment. I'm partyless, and I'm not unhappy about it. What I will do if I want to do any political campaigning, I will go and campaign for the the. Um, the people's vote movement and the European movement. I mean, you know, I'm not cutting myself off from the broader political sphere at all. I, it's just that I don't feel the Labour Party is where I can be at the moment. Do you understand those colleagues who have removed themselves from the Labour Party, the parliamentary Labour Party, and moved onto other parties that either that they have created, I mean, Change UK, or then gone to the Lib Dems? Do you understand that? Yeah, I do, and I do understand it, and I understand completely why they've left the Labour Party. Um, 
it's a big step joining another party. I mean, it's a big step leading, leaving a party you've been in for a long time and a party that you've represented. But it's a further step to join something else. Um, so I think it must have been very difficult for them. And I think they, like me, felt that Labour wasn't where they wanted to be. Um, and it appears that some of them didn't even want to be in Change UK. Um, it's all got a bit unfortunate, really. And I do think if you're going to set up another party, you need to think it through very hard. And I'm not sure that they did that. Or maybe stick with it slightly longer yes, than one election. Exactly. I mean, I, I remember when the SDP was founded... And they obviously had, I mean, the gang of four had obviously thought about what they were doing and they had a big press launch and they went out there and they actually set up a local organisation. And in the 93 election, got a lot of votes, so they didn't win seats because of the first-past-the-post system. But in terms of electoral support, they did very well. And you have to have that. You can't just be a bunch of MPs a dozen MPs saying, oh, we're going to be a new party and change the world, because life just isn't like that. Another new political group which seems to be gaining a bit of traction is the Women's Equality mm. Party. I wonder if that is a party which you have some sympathy with. Well, I have a lot of sympathy with it. I don't think it's the right way to do it. Um, they're never going to be a big party. I mean, that just is not going to happen. Uh, there have been attempts in the past to set up women's parties and they've, they've never worked because they're seen as very narrow, um, which may or may not be true because issues which affect women affect everyone. And as Hillary Clinton has said, um, women's rights are human rights. But people don't see it like that, and they do see it as very sectional and sectarian and women fighting for women. And I don't think it's ever going to get wide enough appeal to actually become an electoral force. I think they're a good pressure group, and I'm, I'm glad they're there, and they should stick to that, I think, rather than trying to get seats in Parliament. Can you remember a time of such political upheaval than we currently have at the moment? No, I can't. It's far worse than the 1980s, um, which was the last time in my lifetime when when things were, were moving quickly and the Labour Party was in... Well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as it is now, and I was in the Labour Party then. I think now is a huge time of upheaval. In this country, I mean, obviously, the big time of upheaval in Europe was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, I don't think we're in that ter- sort of territory, of course. But Brexit and now the ramifications are enormous. And it really has, I think, polarised people and thrown up all sorts of actually rather unfortunate, very unfortunate attitudes. I mean, we've seen a rise in racist crime, for example, and people just behaving really not very well to each other, racist or not. I mean, I think there's been a big movement of people feel that they can they can now say what they want to say, and a lot of it has not been, I think, been the kind of thing we would expect in this country people to be doing and saying. Part of that surely comes down to social media. Mm. There was on the television recently Jess Phillips and others speaking about the amount of abuse that they receive online, which was, I think, shocking to anybody. Yes, exactly. Where does all this unhappiness and hate come from? 
Yeah, well, it's certainly there, isn't it? And I think what people feel now is that they can express it. And like, you're right, social media has been a vehicle for that. I think in, in the old days when communications were through third-party channels, if you like, like television and radio, you couldn't get that because it was filtered out. It never got there. But now social media is individual and people can just go out there, say what they like, and they can remain anonymous. So I think social media facilitates that. I think it's there because there does seem to be in this country at the moment a real feeling that we don't like it, we don't like being here, we don't like the world. I mean, there is a lot of hate and unhappiness. Um, And it's difficult, really, to kind of quite work out why. I mean, as I said earlier, I do think that people feel left behind, people's wages haven't gone up, people do feel in certain parts of the country that they're not really getting a fair deal. But they felt that also in the 80s. Exactly, and it wasn't like that then. Um, I think what has happened since Brexit, particularly since Brexit, there seems to be a licence now to be racist because the campaign was racist. I mean, at the end of the campaign with that poster and with this whole thing about, we'll get a whole, get invaded by Turkish people, it gave people permission to make racist statements. So I think... it. The Brexit campaign opened up a lot of that. I think that was always there, but people were much more wary about it. Now they feel they can say it. There would seem, from what you're saying, to be a desperate need for some sort of unity, which I sense that you would believe that staying in the European Union is what a very important component mm. to that. Another great unifying factor in life has been the universal language of music. Slightly ham-fisted segue there. But music has this ability to communicate Mm. and unite in a very positive Mm. way. Does it communicate with you strongly? Yes. I mean, not as strongly as with some people, but yes, it does, yes. And I agree with you, and I think it is... uh, you certainly see this across Europe and across the world. I mean, people can go and listen to music. You don't need a language, you know, you don't need anything. It's just there. And, and that's fantastic. Well, we're going to find out more about your own musical passions and loves uh, because it's now time that you'll have the considerable pleasure of a visit to the Politics of Sound virtual record shop. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. <laughs> So, Mary, how did you get on in the politics of sound record shop? Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, my first choice is Joan Armour Trading. Why have you chosen this? What does it mean to you, that album that you liked so much? Well, she was so extraordinary, so different, and the music's fantastic and her voice is fantastic. And I think what... I mean, she's a wonderful black woman. And I think what is striking about Joan Armour Trading is that she sings about herself and her emotions which is just wonderful because so many songs are about external things and this is actually really all about her and what she feels it's interesting you say that because she is actually someone who's very private yes yes and when she's been asked about these things I think she has been quite reticent yes although the the songs themselves themselves have enormous amounts of emotion in it. This was actually Joan Armatrading's third album. Normally eponymous albums are the first, yes. but Joan Armatrading is her third. And was also considered her big breakthrough yeah. album, uh, containing the hit single Love and Affection. Mm. Was that the song 
that introduced you to her music. It was, absolutely. And it's just so wonderful. And she's got such a range and she sings loudly, then comes slowly with love and affection, love and affection in the background. It's fantastic. Have you ever seen her perform live? No, I haven't, sadly. You would like I to. would love to, yes. She still does. She has straightened her hair now, so she looks slightly different, but she's very elegant. Um, at the time of its release in 1976, the album was hailed in the press as signalling the emergence of a major black British singer-songwriter. Did you recognise the importance of the album and her emergence when you first heard it? Probably. Or, or was I it mean, just a love of the I, music? It was a fantastic album. I mean, I'm, I'm no great expert and I'm not sure I would ever think about things in those terms because I don't really. But um, I certainly thought she was very special. And there was a difference to the sound. Had yes. you not heard a sound like that before? No, no. There's an extraordinary story about Joan on the trading leaving school at the age of 15 to support her family and getting a job as a typist. And she was promptly sacked for taking her guitar in and playing it at the tea breaks, lunch breaks and everything else. There should be more music in the workplace, I think. Would you agree? I think it would be great. I mean, it'd be fantastic if I'd sat in my office in Brussels with music. It'd be great. Well, I think it's the same way that people do yoga and people do Tai Chi and all these other things. Singing is an incredible unifying force. Yes, absolutely, yes. There should be more more of this, I think. In a way, too, she was blazing a trail and touching on lots of important subjects. She was awarded the OBE. She also was president of an organisation called the Woman of the Year or the Women of the Year Lunch Mm. from 2005 Mm. to 2010. That would surely be something that you would respect and recognise. Oh, very much so. I've actually been to the Women of the Year Lunch. You have, with Joan Obertrading Not with Joan there, sadly, a bit later than that. But I've been invited three times now. And they had a big celebration a few years ago, um, which was... A certain number of years they'd been in existence. I can't remember now, 20 or 25. And it was a, it was wonderful. It was a huge event, which I was invited to, which I was very pleased about. I think Sandy Toxvig also yes. has been yes. president yes. of it. And it was an exciting event. Yes. Oh, it's great. All these wonderful women. And it's just, just a very nice occasion. Uh, well, I'm sorry that Joan on the trading <laughs> wasn't there. You are based in the middle of London, very near to a lot of theatres, concert halls. Are you and your husband culture vultures, would you say? We are a bit, actually, yeah. And how does that manifest itself? Theatre or It's a bit of both, actually. It's theatre and some classical concerts. Um, those Those are the two things that we do a lot of, yeah. When you go to a classical concert, have you ever heard 
the piece which you have in your hand now? I've never heard it live. I would love to. And the piece is what? It's George Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue. What is it that you love about it? It's a piece that most people love from the first time they've heard it. Can you recall the first time you heard that piece? I'm pretty certain it was it was it was a recording when I was a student, um, which was many years ago now, and I just thought it was fantastic. There's this big sound, like, just completely wonderful, and quite unlike anything I'd ever heard before. It's it's thought to be very cinematic, and it mm. conjures up this sort of animated, romanticised depiction of America. Does that pictorial element? appeal to you well I think it does and it's it's obviously it's about New York and I mean that's what I always think of when I hear it I'm just this this big mad city which is just bustling with energy and is quite extraordinary and I think for a Londoner it's New York's very interesting because it's so different from London which is another big energetic city with these high buildings and um, and, and just a completely different way of life and a completely different culture. And actually, a lot of Americans who you just simply can't understand. Yes. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's a different manifestation of big cities. And, you know, I love London and I also love New York. I, th- I think the first time I heard it, for me, it sounded like music from Tom and Jerry. Mm. And I, that music is some of those soundtracks to those cartoons. They had a live orchestra playing to these films in the studio. I don't know how they played the music. The music is so difficult and so animated. And there's also this wonderful start to the piece, which is so celebrated, of this clarinet, glissando, sort of wailing. Yes, yes. You love that moment. Oh, it's great, yes. From the motor. You you were talking about the hustle and bustle. I don't know if you're aware of his other very famous piece, which is An American in Paris, Mm. which uses car horns. Mm. We saw that. It was was on in London not so long ago, and we went to see it. And you enjoyed that? Oh, it's great, yes. There's also a great story concerning the creation of this. George Gershwin had had a meeting with this band leader, Paul Whiteman, and they had had a very vague conversation that at some point he should write a jazz concerto for Paul Whiteman's jazz band. And then Ira Gershwin, George Gershwin's brother, happened to pick up a magazine or a newspaper and said, George, I think you need to see this, because in five weeks that piece that you spoke to Paul Whiteman about is going to be played. He hadn't written a note of it. So he was on a train, panicking away, and all of the sort of clickety-clack of the train was what he based some of the music on. But I think in his head, most of the themes were sorted out by the time he got to the end of his journey. That seems a bit of a pressure gig to me. Extraordinary. I don't quite know how people do that. I'm sure they do. I just think it's quite amazing that he could even contemplate that, that alone actually happening. Well, and it was also, it's well known in its orchestral version, but in fact, that was orchestrated by someone else, not by oh, George right, Gershwin. Right. The original version is for jazz orchestra, which is very exciting. So that sort of pressure, but you've known that sort of pressure that George Gershwin faced mm. as an MEP, you must have done. Meeting deadlines, yes. And, and having of... to go out there and perform and say something, you know, whatever, yes, yes. I mean, it's something that you learn to do as a politician, but... I'm not sure I could do it if I was writing music. Well, I know I couldn't do it writing music. It's a completely different thing than standing up and making a speech. Did you ever play a musical instrument as a child? Mm, I did, actually. I played the piano and the violin a bit. So, yes, I have a, a little bit of a background. Music in schools is in a very 
difficult place at the moment. I think it's very sad, and I think it's subjects like music which have really suffered under cuts and austerity and the movement towards grades and exam and 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 actually narrowing education not expanding it out which i think is a real loss because although i didn't continue with it i've always been so pleased that i had the opportunity to do music when i was young and it's one of those things if you don't do it then it's you're unlikely to pick it up again later so you might have missed out a whole wonderful experience i feel you have a you've had a lifetime's appreciation of music I think I think so, yes. And I think it's great to to be able to recognise pieces sometimes and, and, and know that that was because you learnt, you learnt about it when you were at school. And and it's the same thing I find with, with, with poetry and those sorts of things. If I hadn't done all of that at school, I'm not sure I would ever have got there when I was when I was older. And and that's that's been tremendously valuable. your final selection is generally recognised as a classic. The cover offers a photograph of the artist himself and his girlfriend at the time, Susie Rotolo, huddled together walking down a city street in the cold. And the album is? It's Freewheeling and it's Bob Dylan. This is a 1963 release on the Columbia label. Similar to the Joan Armour trading in that it was his breakthrough album, big breakthrough. You would have been very young when this album was released. How did you become acquainted with it? Well, I wasn't that young. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I yes, um, maybe some of it I picked up a bit later, but that, and, and I certainly really didn't become totally into completely into Bob Dylan until I was in my mid-teens, uh, which was not so many years after 1963. Um, and I just think Bob Dylan was fantastic. I mean, it was an expression of so many of the things that we felt then and so so many things that, that needed to change and how we could change the world. And we really did then believe we could change the world. It was fantastic and music was a really important part of that. If you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Is exactly, that right? something like that. Yes. <laughs> the album opens with one of his most celebrated songs, Blowing in the Wind. Mm. I sense that that is a particularly special song for you. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think it just so much encapsulated what we felt at the time, that things were wrong, 
there was an awful lot that was wrong. And, and there was then. I mean, this was the time of the Cold War and nuclear weapons and the Cuban Missile Crisis not so long before. I mean, you know, the world was actually quite a harsh and difficult place. And Dylan captures that. But also how we could move on, that we had to have faith and believe and be idealistic and, you know, that life didn't have to be like that. And it was just wonderful. Mavis Staples claimed that Blowing in the Wind should be an anthem of the civil rights Mm, movement, stating she could not understand how a young white man could write something that captured the frustration and aspirations of black people so powerfully. Did the song and others shape any of your political thinking? I think it probably did. I mean, that was certainly at the start of my political journey. And I think all of those, what what we used to call protest songs, or we didn't call them that, they were known as that, um, actually did. I mean, they did have an effect. And you began to feel that there there was some kind of movement going on, uh, which is... And it was... I mean, I wasn't in London then. I mean, I was kind of real, real Middle England at that point in my life. But somehow it got it got there and it inspired us. And and you you really felt that yeah, you, know, you felt optimistic. I think and 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 that maybe is what the civil rights movement felt as well. That this this was this was their song. This was people expressing what they wanted to do. And and it took them forward. I think. So for you, he was at least partly the voice of a generation which he's been widely described as. Yeah, I think so, yes. There is obviously strong social commentary, Mm. but there's also a lot of lyrical ambiguity. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, there's a wonderful YouTube clip of him being interviewed in 1965 where some fairly earnest reporters are trying to extract from Bob Dylan the meanings of his songs. And he's extraordinarily dismissive, or he is wanting to keep everything at arm's length Mm. and let people interpret the way they want to. Were you aware of his resistance to interpretation? Not at all. No, I really wasn't. And I I don't think many of us around at the time were. I mean, it all seemed very straightforward. I mean, he he was speaking to us and Maybe we in- that's the way we interpreted it, but I, I would never have thought it was anything else. You mentioned the 1980s. We've spoken about the 1980s. During the 1980s, folk music and the Labour Party went hand in hand mm. through a very fine artist, Billy Bragg. Yes, indeed. Yes. Do you remember him and did you enjoy his music? Very much so. Uh, Red Wedge, and, but yes, Billy Bragg, very much so. Um, Sometimes I did. Sometimes it was a bit harsh, I think, um, and not particularly tuneful. But he was good. And, and again, he was the voice, the musical voice of the Labour Party. I think it was very important, actually, in politics at the time, that there was somebody not just standing up and making speeches and difficult or complicated speeches, but actually making music and getting things across through music. I think it was a great thing to do, and I think it was actually quite important for the party and, indeed, outside of the party um, at that time. Coming back to Bob Dylan, his career has taken so many intriguing twists and turns. In 1965, he controversially altered his style to introduce electric instruments into the band, possibly alienating some purists. Did your love of his music continue and embrace the changes? I wasn't following it in the same way by that time. Um, 
I think those sort of changes are helpful. I mean, everything evolves. I mean, he could not have gone on as he was in 1963. I mean, that just wouldn't have been possible. And it's, I think, a thing that you learn a bit. I'm sounding really old and grumpy now, but it's a bit as if you go through life, you do learn that things do evolve and change and nothing stays the same. And, you know, why should Bob Dylan really be any different from anyone else? But he gave you some wonderful memories and inspiration. Absolutely, definitely. spoken about the current political situation but I have to ask you where do you see all of this heading you know I wish I knew and it's really I have to say this the first time in my political life that I've not known where things are going to go and I when I started my political journey if you like in the 1960s and I was a student then I came to London and I actually got elected to it was the London Borough Barnet Council in 1978 and from that time until until now it was relatively straightforward to plot what was coming next but now it's all up in the air it's all going I mean ever since the Brexit referendum really I mean David Cameron has not only broken the mold he's kind of destroyed the way that politics has conventionally worked in this country so we don't know where we are um We've had Brexit, we've had a Prime Minister who couldn't deliver it, um, and I think she couldn't. I mean, I don't think it was necessarily down to her. I think it's an impossibility. Anyway, Theresa May went, now who knows what's going to happen? Um, Either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt is not going to be good for the country, in my view. And what we've also seen, which we talked about earlier, is breakaway groups. We've seen change. We've seen a surge in Lib Dem support. We've seen a lot of people criticising the way that governance and the constitution in this country work. And there's a real feeling, I think, a real mix going on about change and what's going to happen and I I feel something is we can't go on like this and there's going to be a mould or two or several broken I think at some point in the not too distant future so it really is quite unlike anything I've ever experienced and I don't know I don't know where this is going to end but you will continue to support those issues which are close to you and to campaign I will do and to write your book I will do indeed yes Mary Hannibal thank you very much thank you The Politics of Sound 
my sincere thanks to Mary for being my guest on this month's Politics of Sound. The researcher was Simeon Smith, and I shared the piano playing duties with Owen Price. The cellist was Chris Hedges. The Politics of Sound is written and presented by me, Ian Carnegie. Thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next time. <laughs>